Welcome to Single Malt History with Gareth Russell, pouring out your serving of pure, distilled, intoxicating, and occasionally delicious history. Well, my guest today, we just discovered in our preamble chat before hitting record, may in fact be my long lost <laughs> cousin. Um, it turns out that Diana's mother is a Russell from County Antrim, which is where all my Russell side of the family comes from. Um, so uh, greetings to your relative, apparently. But my guest today, apart from being an extended <laughs> branch of the family tree, is the New York Times bestselling author, Diana Rayburn, whose first novel, Silent in the Grave, was nominated in 2007 for the prestigious Agatha Award for Best New Mystery. These were the first in her Lady Julia Gray series of mystery novels set in Victorian England, Italy and India. Publishers Weekly called them mesmerising and atmospheric. And in 2015, she started a new series, the Veronica Speedwell series, beginning with A Curious Beginning, following through to this year's An Unexpected Peril, which returned to Victorian Britain, this time to different mysteries centred on the German aristocracy, bohemian artists' communities, the British royal family, London brothels, and the explosion of Krakatoa. She is a juggernaut of a mystery writer, and I'm thrilled to welcome her to Single Malt History. Diana, hello. Hello. I'm uh, as I told you before. I am I am beyond delighted to be here. I'm a huge Gareth Russell fangirl. So if you'd see me now, you'd see the pom poms, and <laughs> it's not weird. I swear. I don't have a I don't have a board with your face on it. Oh well, that's disappointing. <laughs> but um. <laughs> But we are we are absolutely kin in my mind. This is, this is no just, it was it was you're like oh it was Russell. I was like okay, and they're like Aaron. I was like fine, and I was like it's the county Antrim. I was like okay, <laughs> yeah, it's okay, it's it's happening. It's fine. We're just gonna roll <laughs> so it. Was like, uh, uh, shrinking concentric circles of genealogy. I think so. It absolutely was, is. Yeah. Um, and then, oh, they were they were Protestant ministers. I was like, like a lot of the ancestors. <laughs> Absolutely. So, <clears throat> so this is what I'm going to tell people. It's cousin Gareth's yeah, podcast. Yeah, cousin. Yeah, I, I think we have to refer to each other with the prefix cousin from now on, hmm. um, which is Absolutely. how people. And watch this for a segue, which is how people did it in Victorian Britain. So let's begin with Victoria. See, <laughs> there we go. That was elegant. Thank you. Well, you know, it's a family <laughs> thing. So let's begin with Victorian Britain, where both your Victoria, excuse me, Veronica Speedwell series and Lady, Lady Julia Gray mysteries are set. What is it about that Victorian time period that interests you? You know, I I get asked that question a lot, and you are probably the person who asked me that, and, and I actually sat down and thought about it for the first time and tried to trace it back to the very first time that I picked up something that was Victorian and and it clicked. Because when I when I was a very small child, I was a complete Tudor fangirl. Um, Anne Boleyn is the first person in history I ever remember really kind of becoming obsessed with and thinking, I want to know everything about this person. Wow, um, we really might be related. <laughs> I know, I know, right? Um, and then it and then it kind of expanded into other decapitated queens. I don't know, like I don't know why there's there's that thing that I'm like, oh, Mary Queen of Scots, oh, Catherine Howard, oh, Marie Antoinette. I I I suppose it's because it it kind of subverts the fairy tale. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you you grow up in this Disney thing and you expect that she's going to marry a prince and live happily ever after. And then she loses her head. So not so much. Um, and you you kind of are, are like, that's as bad an ending as you can possibly have yeah. uh, for that fairy tale. So I, I was just always really fascinated by these women who had you know, probably on their wedding day, when they go in and marry this prince, they've got every possible expectation that things are going to go really well. And how does it go so badly awry? Um, because I, I always think that's that's a really fascinating journey. Um, and then I the, the Victorian thing, I think, really happened because my parents are, are very big readers, but they're not big re-readers. So they will read books and they donate them, they pass them on. And so there were very few books on their bookshelves that stayed throughout my childhood. And it was the collected works of William Shakespeare. It was a big poetry anthology. And then there were these books that were Reader's Digest condensed books, which were a, they were a thing in the 70s. Um, and I, I don't know if they ever happened in the UK. I, I hope My father had them, yeah. <laughs> okay, so you're familiar. Yeah. Um, so there were these, these Reader's Digest condensed books. Um, and I think, what did they come? Like once a month, you'd get an, another volume in the mail? I think so. That rings a bell. And, I love them. Would, I mean, they, they looked so, I mean, they looked kind of magisterial of memory. Oh, they really did. Like it was a very proper Downton Abbey library happening here, yeah. um, you know, because they had that leatherette cover and they were stamped in you know, with a yes. the little gilt uh, yeah. print. And it was just, it was very, and they were illustrated. So they were, they were very fancy. Um, but one of the, of the books came and it had an abridged version of the Queen's Confession by Victoria Holt. Ah. Which, <clears throat> so that was a, it's still, I mean, for my money, it's still a, a really solid Marie Antoinette novel. If you, if you want a novelization, I, I think you could do a lot worse. But that was kind of my, my entree because Victoria Holt wrote all of these other things that were Victorian. She had a, a, a huge uh, kind of backlist of, of these Victorian gothics that I started reading because I wanted to go find more of Victoria Holt. So I started reading those and my grandmother noticed I was reading those and passed me um, Sherlock Holmes because I had also gotten a hold of, uh, now this was when I was about six, probably uh, an abridged version of, of Hound of the Baskervilles that was like just for kids. So it wasn't super scary where the hound was was concerned, and they, they kind of glossed over what Sir Hugo had gotten up to with the barmaid, um, <laughs> because it's specifically for kids. Um, but it still it, it, it set the scene really well. And so my my grandmother bought me the the full kind of canon uh, of of Sherlock Holmes, and I was into these Victoria Holt novels. And so it was just a whole lot of Victoriana at one time. And what really clicked with me was the fact that. Victoriana is what I like to think of as comfortably exotic. It's just far enough removed that it feels like you're visiting a different place. And yet there's so much that is exactly the same. Um, you know, when you, when you, I, I had a lot of very older, like I, I knew my great, great grandfather. So I had a lot of very old relatives when I was growing up. And so they just weren't very far removed from this. Um, I mean, my grandfather was born in, in 1912. So, you know, very, very close to the end of the Victorian era. So this just was not a massive time gap 
Um, and, and there's so much overlap and so much familiarity, especially if you look at the long kind of Victorian era, you know, through from the end of the Regency up to the beginning of, of World War One, and kind right. of, you know, bracket it a little bit extra, which, you know, you've done Titanic work. Uh, <laughs> That that you you do see this this overlap and 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 they struggled with so many of the same questions that we do. You know, you you pick up a newspaper. There was a there's a wonderful newspaper archive in the UK that uh, very graciously sent me copies. They said, you know, we'd love to send you some some editions. Just tell us what dates you're interested in. And so I just threw out some random dates in 1888, 1887. And they sent me actual newspapers. They weren't facts. Oh, wonderful. Like, actual newspapers. I know. I, I heaved when I opened that box. <laughs> I, and I, I still take them out and pet them from time to time. Um, but they, the amazing thing is you look at them and they're talking about, well, what do we do about these immigrants? You know, what do we do about the problem of unemployment? What do we do about these women who are agitating for uh, a, a louder voice in public? What do we do about workers who feel like they're not being treated fairly? What do we do about, you know, the the unrest in Afghanistan? I mean, there is nothing new under the sun. You look at what literally everything and they're flipped out by technology because it's changing so much. And I'm thinking evergreen, like all of it is evergreen. So it's it's a great opportunity when you write Victoriana to kind of go and play in this sandbox that is just different enough that you feel like you're escaping and yet the themes are exactly the same i think that's a perfect assessment of it actually because it is i mean i understand the, the long victorian period as well i think that's something we i mean the the demarcation of historical periods is always tricky because you know it, it's mm-hmm. not as if victoria died the minute edward the seventh became king every attitude changed and in many ways right. The, both the confidence and the neuroticism of the Victorian period does carry up to 1914, I think, you know, and. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, when you, when you have things like, and, and, and I'm sure this came to you when you were working uh, on the Titanic book. And then, and then as you look at world war two, that I, I feel like a lot of the, the, the kind of complacency of the Victorian mm. era wasn't hugely challenged until these things start to happen. No, um, I mean, it really, and, and worlds are rocked suddenly. Right. That's it. I think there are certainly, um, yeah, I, I would agree. I know that some people have said, if you look at the number of kind of political assassinations and, uh, so, you know, around really kind of that, that the turn of the century, there was, the Empress of Austria, the King of Italy, the President of the mm-hmm. United States were, were assassinated, all, you know, all by anarchists. But generally, the Victorians tended to see this as examples of malcontents and individual acts of evil. They did not tend to see it as indicative of a society that was about to buckle apart. That's not how exactly, exactly. And you know, most of my books are set in the 1880s, and you certainly had assassination attempts. You had this burgeoning uh, German question of armament. You know, should we be scared of the Germans? What are they getting up to? Um, and and what I see, you know, from my perspective, is people who had the ability to cocoon themselves from those worries, kind of burrowed in deeper. 
Yes, I would agree. And leaned into, oh, well, we probably don't have to worry about that. That's, you know, and, and kind of went on about their business and just assumed that things were going to be fine. And that these were not kind of harbingers of, of, of the end of an era as much as they were just kind of growing pains. You know, oh, it's, yes. it's an aberration, as opposed to looking at it as a pattern that was going to, to lead to something that, that was going to be the end of what they had known as they had known it. Yes, I think there was, I think, you know, Europe had gone through, you know, so many wars and there was a, obviously a, a long period of peace. But I think a lot of them looked back to the cataclysm as they would have seen it of the, of the French Revolution and the fact that, yes, there had been upset, but then the Congress of Vienna came along and established, you know, I mean, the 30 years after the collapse of the Bonapartist Empire, was in many ways the golden age of conservatism. It was it was Metternich and it was Biedermeier and it was mm-hmm. this reassertion of peace and status quo. It kind of pats everything back into place. And, yeah, and, know, and, yeah. You know, and for a lot of Victorians and, and people who grew up in the immediate aftermath of that, yes, there might be troubles, but ultimately what had always been would endure and would reassert itself. Mm-hmm. And I exactly. don't, what they didn't realize was that that they had, you know, that this technology that they had cheerleaded, some of them were, were certainly anxious about it. And you can see that in their novels, but this technology that they had cheerleaded that made their lives easier had also made every weapon that they had ever known infinitely more deadly. And I think, mm-hmm. I, I know I have friends who are, who, I'm a bit of a Luddite, I have to say. I'm, <laughs> I, I respect am, that. Thank you, because I am <laughs> not good. I've tried to turn it into like a moral stance. I'm like, I'm a Luddite, rather than I can't work things. Um, but, That's adorable. But I, I tore out my dishwasher and, and got rid of it. So I I sympathize completely. Yeah, well, I, my dishwasher <laughs> makes signs that make me think it needs like a priest and an exorcist. It's just terrible. But I... <laughs> But I, but I have friends who have this innate trust in, in kind of putting all their information online. Well, like, you know, I think we are kind of, we are at a period of intense technological growth and metamorphosis that is not a million miles removed from the level, the speed of change that was happening in the 1880s, the 90s, and the early 1900s. Mm-hmm. And, and again, there's nothing, there's nothing new under the sun at all. History has given us ample warnings as it gave the Victorians warnings and we are not listening. No, and I think too, you know, you look at the beginning of Victoria's reign and everybody gets everywhere via horsepower and you light everything with candlelight. And by the end of her reign, motor cars had been invented. There was yeah. there was electric light. And in between you have steam power and gaslight. And you think of, of the, just the sheer you know, magnitude of having to navigate all of those changes and what those changes in turn mean. You know, it's not just a matter of we're basically going to go to bed with the sun now, you know, because of the fact that it's too expensive for the majority of us to stay up late. Yeah. You know, we 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 can we can completely change our circadian rhythms. We can change the way we manufacture things. We can, you know, and and it just spills into everything. And it's really fascinating to read about the people who had difficulty navigating that, the people who would you know, faint when they tried to get onto a motor car or an escalator or, you know, just because it was, it was overwhelming and it was too much. And, and I do kind of sympathize and say, well, yeah, I get it. If you, about, <laughs> if you think about Elizabeth II's reign, when Elizabeth II became, when the current queen became queen, 
the the quickest way to get from this country between my country and yours was on the Queen Mary. That was that was the quickest way, and that was I think four days. And now my I, father actually did it as a child. Yes, really. I you know, I stayed on it when and now it's a floating <laughs> hotel. You it know, is and, beyond haunted. Like oh, just. Yeah. Mm. So the joke actually the joke is mm. apparently the first class tickets were so expensive that people that the dead are still trying to get their money's worth. Just refused I to leave. Absolutely um, believe it. And the internet wasn't invented. And you know, mm-hmm. it's 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 a it, we are living through, I think, a second Victorian period. So that absolutely tracks. And you have you've two very distinctive heroines. You've Julia and Veronica. Can you mm-hmm. describe them for um our listeners? Well, Julia is very much a child of privilege. She is the daughter of an earl. She is the ninth of tenth children uh, of ten children. So she she has this this enormous extended family um, that is uh, kind of boisterous and eccentric, and and they're involved in everything that she does. Um, and Veronica is is a very very different sort of person. She um, has been raised by a few uh, spinster women who who were kind of passing themselves off as her aunts, um, and she is a lepidopterist by trade. She actually earns a living in a a genteel way because collecting butterflies for Victorians is probably about as ladylike a way as you can earn a living. Um, and it was also pretty lucrative. Um, it, you yeah. know, for, if you, if you found a good specimen, because of course you'd go out and you collect butterflies for other people. Um, because that was a, with all this newfound wealth and leisure of the, the middle class in England, a lot of people started to um, kind of take on the habits and the, uh, you know, the the comforts and luxuries of of what they had considered to be for a long time, their betters. Um, and it was a very um, kind of gentlemanly thing to do to to create a cabinet of curiosities or um, to to start some sort of natural history collection, you know, whether it's ferns or or snails, um, which, you know, if you want to sit around and look at snails in a box all day, sure, more power to you. Um, yeah. But um, <laughs> you know, lepidoptera is one of those things that was that was very fashionable, <laughs> and um, the 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 rarer of a specimen that you could collect, you know, you you could easily um, clear three guineas uh, on on a good specimen at a time when a lady's maid maybe made ninety guineas a year. Um, so you could theoretically. 30 butterflies in have made a perfectly decent living for yourself. Um, and, and so, and, and it was a, it was a way that, um, women could earn a living without, uh, a huge amount of overhead, uh, because you, you know, it, it took a butterfly net and some pins and a killing jar and, and, and that wasn't, uh, that wasn't too much to invest. Um, and it was I think for a lot of women, um, a, a means of getting out and seeing the world. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, I, I've when I got my my history degree, um, it, it was from a university that um, had a very small history department, and so I always joke that that I, I spent a lot of time studying what um, Western European men were doing um, for a number of centuries, and what they were doing was war. They did war. They did a lot of war. Um, and I was super interested in what the women were doing. And unfortunately we didn't have any courses in that. So when I left university, I, I kind of struck it on my own to, to see, okay, what were the women getting up to? 
Um, and I was absolutely fascinated by Victorian female explorers um, because it's the it's the first time you really see women kind of striking out on their own. Um, and I'm 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 speaking solely to um, Western European women um, because that's my that's my area. Um, that that they were striking out, they were going to places where Western European women had not been before, and in many cases, Western European men had not been. Um, and they they went in a lot of different guises. You know, I'm I'm not terribly interested in the ones who went as missionaries, um, but the ones who went as natural historians or the ones who went, you know, um, archaeologists, botanists, uh, you know, collecting samples, talking to people, getting to know people, even if they just went to to sightsee, um, it they make for really really fascinating reading, um, and and it's it's really intriguing to me to see how many of them had sort of, I guess, what we would consider to be psychosomatic health problems when they were in the UK. Yeah. Um, you know, various rheumatics and neuralgia and headaches. And the doctor would prescribe a change of air, a change of scene. And all of a sudden, two months later, you know, she's riding bareback up a mountain uh, in Brazil because, you know, it, it, was, it was a way of escaping these societal strictures you know you could uh, many of them traveled without a companion they traveled without a maid and you could do that towards the end of the Victorian era without being completely beyond the pale right. socially um you, you still were not going to be you know someone that uh a, a, a very strictly brought up debutante would be entrusted to um but you you could still move in in you know, fairly respectable circles, even if you had traveled without, um, without a chaperone of some sort. And it's just, it it was fascinating to me to kind of track how these women, um, went about asserting their independence and, and, and doing things that, that women had not been doing before. And so I, I got particularly intrigued with one of them. Uh, Margaret Fountain was a lepidopterist who, Traveled, I, she butterflied on six continents, uh, collecting for people and sending her collections back and making a really good living for herself. And it, it all started because she, she fell in love inappropriately, um, you know, as you do, uh, with a, <laughs> with a man who didn't reciprocate her affections. And, um, and, and she decided to kind of take off and, and, and a lot of them did that. A lot of them were escaping, you know, the, the unpaid labor of, oh, you know, you're the unmarried sister or you're the daughter. Yes. You know, who, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so they were trying to escape being the nursemaid or the spinster aunt. And, and in Margaret's case, she was the, the girl on the shelf. And so she, decided to kind of submerge her heartbreak in, um, you know, after the choir master let her down um, and go hunting butterflies. And the thing about Margaret is she had premarital sexual relationships. She had interracial relationships. She had the kinds of relationships that we do not think of Victorian women traditionally having anywhere, but she had them and she left diaries about them. And they're, they're, um, they're kind of just very blasé about, you know, she'll talk about, I was chasing this beautiful little La Ciomata through the Alpine meadow and suddenly, you know, Klaus's hands were inside my corset and you're like, what? And you kind of have to go back <laughs> and reread and go, what was happening? 
Um, because she she would engage in these dalliances and she would, you know, make out with a porter or she would, uh, you know, kind of um, allow uh, certain liberties to one of her male travelers. And I thought, you know, God bless her. Margaret was very much trying to be her own person in a society and in an era that did not necessarily applaud or encourage that behavior. And so I, I, I have great respect for the fact that, you know, Margaret died at an advanced age, butterfly net in hand in Santo Domingo. And apparently there's a rock by the side of the road that has her name on it right where she died. And um, I, I just found her so fascinating that I, I decided if I was ever going to write a Victorian character again, that Margaret's inspiration would have to come through a little bit. And that's why Veronica is a lepidopterist, uh, because I, I wanted her to have an occupation. Um, she is she is very well traveled. Um, she was there when Krakatoa exploded. She's been kidnapped by Sardinian brigands. She's, you know, she's been shipwrecked with a Chinese monk. She's had, she's had lots of adventures. Um, she's she's very much an, uh, kind of an irrepressible character. And she she has this semi-legitimate connection to the royal family because she she is the the product of uh, an illicit liaison um, that she only discovers when she's fully grown uh, through the action in the first book. And that kind of leads her to a whole bunch of these um, different adventures because she starts falling over dead bodies, as you do. Of course. Well, that's... that's <laughs> You have to start falling over them somehow, otherwise these stories are not going to work. Exactly. Um, but you talked a little bit. I mean, sort of. I mean, it might be overagging the question here, but I think you've you've sort of talked about real life inspirations and uh, your your interest in Victoriana. But is there? I mean, do you have like a a specific research process for each novel, or is it um, a little bit more? I mean, I I don't. I think some novelists I know have a very set process for each book what is what is your process for researching well i'm i'm fundamentally lazy so i don't like to <laughs> I, it's true i own it i own it um i'm 53 i'm not gonna lie to you Garrett. um i <laughs> not between I, family not between family um no i i like to have fun when i work i mean why why are we going to do this i mean it's the it's the greatest occupation in the world to be able to geek out over the things that you love and, and, you know, be able to do a deep dive into things that really fascinate you. So I, I make sure that with every book, um, you know, overarching everything is the Victorian period. So I'm always, you know, kind of getting my hands on, on new bits of Victoriana. Um, and that's an ongoing thing, but with each, within each book, there will be some element of the puzzle that, has to do with a, with something that I'm interested in, whether it is um, poisons or whether it's, um, you know, because the, the method of murder is always interesting or whether it's, right. um, you know, um, a, a particular place that I've always been intrigued by or um, one of the books, uh, the the third one in the series um, is, is uh, kind of focuses on an Egyptological uh mystery because Egyptology was just such a thing for the Victorians and I've always found it fascinating. Me too. Yeah. So, I mean, it's an excuse to go and 
obsessively read things that you're fascinated in and then kind of incorporate them. So yes. when I yeah. when I know that there's going to be an element in a in a book, um, like the book I'm getting ready to write is is going to feature some um some fossils from the Jurassic Coast. So I've loaded up on like Mary Anning biographies mm-hmm. um and and can't wait to kind of dive into those because that's an area that I I know a very little about. So I need specific knowledge in order to do that. Um, but, you know, I, I, I ran across a fantastic quote many, many, many decades ago um, where the historical novelist Persia Woolley said, you know, you, you do your historical research and only about 30% of it should ever go in the book. 70% yeah. of it is just for you to set the stage so that you know the world you're trying to convey. And that that I think has been really, really instructive for me That's because it is, it's brilliant yeah. because fiction, fiction readers do not want, uh, you know, a, a, a kind of a, a, a seminar in, in whatever you're doing. They want to be entertained primarily. That's what they're looking for, especially when they come to mystery. Um, and so the idea is you set the stage for them. You may give them a little, you know, a few little nuggets here and there of things that they might not have known, but then that's it. That's all you really need to do. And if they're interested in more, you know, those are the things that you can share when you're doing interviews or you're, right. you know, you're, you're writing articles or, or whatnot. And that can be for people who go and seek those things out, but they're, they're not things. Yes. I mean, yeah. I mean, how many times have you read a novel and you've just looked at paragraph after paragraph after paragraph? It's just very, very dense prose. And you're thinking, I'm yeah, not exactly. Sure, I wanted to get this far into you know that, because I think then you can tell some. Yeah, there have been a few where I thought, uh, I feel like you found this out in research, and, find <laughs> it and it's you gone. found it much more interesting than I do. Yeah, yeah. and you and you and the the risk I think that it ha- and you can spot really good historical fiction writers, um, who can convey the essence of the period. I think sometimes. There have been a few where the his, the history geek within is interested, mm-hmm. but to be honest, I I will always be getting my I, I, if I want that I'll be going to a nonfiction book. I read them, you know I, I, exactly, exactly, and not, and there's so much great yeah. kind of popular history where you right. can do that. I mean, I that is that is one of my absolute favorite genres to read and there are so many amazing people publishing things i mean i've already fangirled over your Catherine howard book because you know how much i loved that book because it was just it was it was gorgeously accessible and and it just it read so smoothly and so you know so uh it it just it was so engaging uh that i absolutely felt and, and a good historical author will give you that sense of place as they're saying, by the way, did you think about this thing? And look at this awesome piece of research I found that no one else has ever seen in this archive. Um, but they'll, they'll draw you in. And that's absolutely what the Catherine Howard book did for me. And that's what I use those books for. I, I right, don't, correct. I don't go yeah. to fiction for that personally. So I, mean, I don't yeah, write I fiction like that. Spot, no, you don't. And I think also you can spot um, when you get those paragraphs the minute I feel like, just for me personally as a reader, the minute where I think, oh, is when I start to wonder, do you find these paragraphs more interesting than your own characters? And that's my <laughs> Oh, 
Oh, that's lethal. That is absolutely lethal. No, but I think it's, I think it's absolutely true. I think it's where, um, where people have, have just gotten so, and God knows there've been things that I've been absolutely intrigued to find out, Mm -hmm. but if I can't find kind of a subtle way to communicate it to a reader, um, then I, I, that's one of those cases where you kill your darlings and you, you slice and dice and you just say, and you save that. For when you're being interviewed and someone says, hey, can you tell me something really cool that you wrote about this book? And you're like, let me tell you my story. Can I? Oh, Um. my God. Try (laughs) to shut me up about this. And then you've got this great anecdote that you've tucked away. So it it works out really well. And, you know, I will research things like the moon phase or um, weather patterns. Uh, for a particular time when I've set a book just to see like it served me beautifully yeah. because the the book that came out this this past year it's getting ready to come out in paperback is um, an unexpected peril and I checked the weather for January of um, 1889 and it turns out there was this massive snowstorm um, in the Midlands through the south of England and it actually kind of was the catalyst for an entire section of the plot where I was like, oh, I needed a reason this character couldn't be right where they were supposed to be. That. Perfect. So I used it and I, I will use moon phases when um, like when I need it to be super dark. Okay. Well, we know it can't, it, it can't be during a full moon. It's got to be, you know, this time of the, of the cycle. I will use that. But my rule of thumb is that it doesn't even have to be plausible what I put it uh, uh, what I put in the book. It just has to be possible. Like I, I yes. can stretch a reader's credulity just a little bit. Um, it has to be possible what I'm suggesting happen, um, even if it's unlikely, because a lot of unlikely stuff happens in history. Um, <laughs> so, so that's my rule of thumb. I think that's a great one. Well, it means. <laughs> It's, it, I think you can, I mean, I love, love mystery novels. And I, I'm, I'm, my grandmother, we would read Agatha Christie novels to each other when I was younger. What is so it that, with grandmothers? What is it with grandmothers voicing Agatha Christie on the Interestingly, she sort of, my grandmother won a scholarship to a, a, an excellent school in Northern Ireland in the 30s. And didn't get to go because her mother's attitude, I mean, that she said to her was, well, what does a girl need that for? Um, Now my my heart is broken. Yeah. And that, (laughs) I think, you know, she, she, you know, she got married and she opened her own bookstore and um, she, she just adored books, but there was, and she was so encouraging of me and my father um, in education, because I think there was always that, that wound, but she, but she absolutely adored mystery novels and that brings me to this which feels like an obvious question to to ask (laughs) but do you have any um sort of classic mystery novels which you've loved for years mine with i mean i reread it once a year is murder in the orient express oh well i mean again mine is a grandmother connection because when i had gone through sherlock holmes my grandmother handed me my very first second Christie, and it was Death on the Nile. And all oh, she said I love that. Was, that's, that I very nearly said that one, but it's, she yeah. said, I think you will enjoy this. And that is all she said. And I went off, and that was my very first second Christie. And, and it's, you, know, and I, way, you don't, you do, Death on the Nile is a, is a Rubicon moment in, in maturity because you don't yeah. realize just how much you're on Jacqueline's side until oh you. Oh my God, I'm 100% team to Belfort. Like, <laughs> I'm completely. You're like, what is this crazy person's problem? And then you have your heart broken. And you're like, yeah, Jacqueline, I get it. <laughs> I'm 
do. I do. You know, oh my God. It's like the, the moon when the sun comes out. That is that is just the most horrible, just heartbreaking thing that Simon says about her. And and even though we know later that it's not true. Right. Um, oh, but still, still, but well, the thing is, this is my this is my by the way, this book was in the published in the 30s, people. But if you if you want if you want to read it, stop listening. Um, right. No spoilers. This is this is my this is my thing with the, with with Simon. I actually do think he meant that. I think had she been enough, that whole thing wouldn't have happened. That's that's my theory. Yeah. No, I I, I do too. I think Simon was uh, even weaker than uh, than Jacqueline realized, um, and I think he I think he ultimately would have disappointed her a lot. Yeah. Um, I honestly think he if, if if the plot had worked out, he would have gambled through all of that money. All of it. All of it. I like that. I never thought of that, but that's so true. And I it's think one hundred percent true. And then he would have knocked her off for a life insurance policy that he bought at the last minute. <laughs> right. There would have been. And like he a... would have ended up in the chair anyway. No, I don't. I, what were they doing at that point? Firing squad? I don't they know. Were yeah. Um, probably. Yeah. No, yes, I, um, I, 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 abs- I, I have such a soft spot for Agatha Christie. And, and, um, and that is with the caveat that, that reading her now, the, the um, issues with regard to, racial representation or anti-Semitism are of course much more apparent than they were to me as a 10 year old. Well, see, um, I, that's interesting because actually the ones that I, I haven't widely read in Agatha Christie and funny, I was a, a friend and I were talking about it. Some of the, the ones that have dated the best, including murder in the Orient express, they don't have that. They, they don't cover yeah. those topics. Um, some of the other, particularly, I think, I mean, she was an archaeologist. Her husband was an archaeologist, wasn't he? I think she she wrote. Okay, that. so speaking of cool stories, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. we're going to take a detour here, Gareth, because the thing that drives me absolutely bananas is everybody wants to talk about when Agatha went missing. You know, oh, yeah. she was devastated because her husband cheated on her. Oh, she was so sad. It broke her emotionally. And she had this, this, you know, fugue state that she went into and disappeared. We do not talk nearly enough about the fact that after she was divorced, he went to Mesopotamia to visit friends, what was then Mesopotamia, to visit friends who were conducting an archaeological expedition, hooks up with their young uh, dig coordinator goes off swimming in her underwear with him, ends up marrying him at his insistence. I mean, he is young. He's ador- he's like 12 years younger than she is. He's adorable. And no one talks about this part of her life. Right. Where Agatha is living her best life. And nobody talks about that part of her life. We all talk about her being sad and, you know, oh, they discovered her car wrecked on a... We don't talk about this nearly enough. I am obsessed with the fact that she found this darling young archaeologist and he wooed her, you know, all the way from the Middle East back to to England where she was living. And, and, you know, and the things that they were getting up to you wouldn't think that respectable, staid, divorced Agatha Christie would be getting up to. I mean, swimming in her underwear with this man she's not married to. I mean, shocking. I didn't. Hard a love affair. I really didn't. Um, I lo- I'm obsessed with this story. But yes, her second husband, Max Mellowin, was was an archaeologist, and so she she, she has. Ended like, up- oh, there is quite a few like murder in Mesopotamia or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Which uh, is bananas. It's a bananas book, and I still love it. Um, it this, has the single uh, most unlikely uh, solution. Uh, well, it's funny, on that issue, when I mean, when I was talking about this with a friend who's a big murder mystery buff as well, and they said, because <laughs> I, they said, you love Murder on the Orient Express because it's, it's close to a perfect mystery um mm-hmm. a perfect resolution it's the it's the like almost the perfect example of like the closed location right. and you know <laughs> you haven't read enough of her books where they're batshit like, they are they are <laughs> i love when agatha goes batshit because here's the thing some of her books she's doing things that are so absolutely new murder of roger Ackroyd. right narrator did it what like <laughs> that that was so not playing fair you know murder on the orient express they all did it that's bananas yeah and then you've got death on the nile where you've got this two-handed um alibi both of them did it it doesn't make any sense she was doing these brilliant brilliant things that were just you know so fresh and so original and then you get other books like murder in mesopotamia and you look at the solution of that novel and you just think i were you stoned like death in the death in the oh. clouds. That was a bit oh. like that. I think with that oh was that the was that the pea sugar one? Oh my god! Yes, and and was fake and I, wasp or something. It yes, was, yeah, yes. Yeah, there was yeah. a fake wasp, and I. <laughs> but I love them anyway. And one of the things yeah. that I think she doesn't get nearly enough credit for is everybody talks about what a great plotter she 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 was, and the fact that. Um, she wasn't very good at characterization. And I take huge exception to that. I think she was great at characterization. Yeah. I think when you can refer to a character with one line and say, he was the sort of man no one would remember to talk to at parties. Yeah. I know exactly who that man is. Yeah. That was it. I mean, that to me is absolutely brilliant. Well, she, I, I adore her. In Murder on the Orange Express, actually, I think, I mean, there's a lot that turns on this really subtle point of the grease spot on oh yeah the, yes under any oh yeah sport. well and, i have i mean princess jagomirov is like my old lady uh, like that's who i want to be when i'm you know i i feel like i've got it like about another 20 years to get there i uh, i had always hoped i would be conscious under any but i'm gonna be princess jagomirov <laughs> 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 the like tragic arc of my oh, life. Oh, you are all of us. You know, <laughs> we all want to be Countess Andrani, and then we look in the mirror and go, "Oh crap!" But um, she, the Dragomirov years are upon me. Yeah, this um, is the approach. But they like you just the thing with um uh, the Countess is that she really describes so brilliantly th- that what glamour looks like with the Countess Andrani, and absolutely that very subtle. Um, sh- preoccupation with chic that was so much of kind of 1930s high society and yes. and, and she and that her and 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 Count Andreni, there is this they are so of that moment in the mid-1930s and she does it so well and so subtly and bear in mind you know Murder on the Orient Express like Death in the Nile has a huge cast. There are what I think he. Oh, it's massive, and I and I like the Andrinis alone. I don't think you could put them in another decade. I think they are no. so of the moment. Yeah, I think so, and that's something. With I mean, what I did not know actually when I, I mean it was like ten or eleven when I wrote it the first time, but uh, reading David um, Canadine's book, The Decline and Fall of the British Aristocracy, and he talks about the post First World War. 
you know, what was happening to the British aristocracy that was um, on trend to what was happening to the wider European hereditary nobility after the First World War compared to what was uh, different in terms of historical trends. And quite interestingly, he says the only aristocracy to have a moment after 1918 where they were more influential than they had been before was Hungary's. And that they, yes, the monarchy technically collapsed and the Habsburg Empire disintegrated, but actually Hungary was was predominantly kind of nationalist, conservative in the interwar period. And so there was a real um, celebration of, promotion of, preoccupation with the symbols of the Hungarian past that maybe hadn't flourished as much under the Habsburgs. So aristocratic families were finding themselves being fast-tracked into things like the diplomatic corps and into parliament in a way that no other aristocracy at the time was. And that's exactly what Count Andrani is. You know, he's something like in his mid-20s, and yet he has this very prestigious uh, diplomatic career. So she, I think... um, she, you know, we think of her as historical fiction, but obviously she's writing contemporary fiction. Yes, she, very much, very much contemporary. Yeah. Because you yeah. can see such a huge shift in her books from what she was writing in the 1930s to what she was writing in the 1950s. You know, right. they're, they're very different perspectives. I actually, I have a huge soft spot for, um, it's what we call in the States 450 from Paddington. But I think in the UK, it's... Um, what Mrs. Mc, uh, what Mrs. McGillicuddy saw? I think it's, okay. it's they usually publish it as four fifty from Paddington. Now. Okay, okay, we get it as four fifty from Paddington, and I I, I absolutely adore that book. It's uh, it's a, a reread I do most most often near Christmas because of course that's when it's set. But I have a huge soft spot for Lucy Islesborough. Right. Who is this magnificent character? Who I deeply deeply regret she did not use in many, many books, because I am fascinated with the fact that Lucy Osborne, she had like, what, a first in mathematics from Oxford, um, and she hires herself out as an extremely efficient domestic. And so she kind of buzzes through the house, just doing everything that needs doing with this, this you know, kind of swan-like serenity and solves a murder mystery at the same time. Because on behalf of Miss Marple, who can no longer get around. Um, right. and, and I just, I adore Lucy Islesborough. Um, and she's one of those characters who I really, I, I wish had been explored more fully in other books. But, I, but do you think, I mean, this is, I, I, it's interesting because I think we are, Really, I mean, there've been actually some great nonfiction books about this as well. But I think you can spot a very distinct, um, as happened probably with actually a lot of people in Britain after the Second World War. I think if you're looking as a historian or a cultural historian reading her books, the presentation of anti-Semitism or of Jewish characters takes a massive shift after the Second World War. Oh, huge, huge, yeah. yeah. There's yeah. there's a very kind of casual way that she had of of dealing with these anti-Semitic tropes, almost as if, well, this is just what I was brought up with and this is what we all know, you know, yes. kind of that yeah. sort of a, of a way of presenting it in the books that predate World War II. And then after that, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very different vibe uh, because it, it's, um, it feels like there's more of an awareness of, well, 
that yeah. wasn't very enlightened of us, was it? Well, I think um, so. And you, and you can spot, look, there's a, there's such an, intri- there's, <clears throat> you can spot it in biographies of certain socialites, actually, or people who were in society, high society mm-hmm. in the 1930s and the reckoning. Yeah, exactly. Have- because I think there was such a, a sense of, because there had been such close ties to Germany. Um, yes. for so that, long. If you read their letters, by the way, I mean, this is something that really, I mean, I've read so many of them and yet it still shocks me. The habitual, casual frequency of their anti-Semitism is actually, it's its its breathtakingly horrible. And it, 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 it absolutely is. And, and there is always this very casual assumption that, well, this is how we all feel. This is just, yeah. this is just accepted. I'm speaking to someone who understands this because this is this is how it is. There, and- there, there have been times where it's where there have been things that they've said where I've had to go back and reread it because I didn't get it, and then you realize that it is a kind of shorthand prejudice that they'll all just get. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely, yeah. absolutely, and and it kind of you know if you're if you're raised in a in a you know. Uh, hopefully not anti-Semitic household and you're raised post-World War II, it, it, it's this slap in the face when you yes, read this and you're like, oh my really God, is. this is horrible. I mean, I, I remember the, the first time I read um, Scarlet Pimpernel, speaking of Hungarian aristocrats, the first time I read <laughs> Scarlet Pimpernel, which in many respects is just so over the top perfect. And then you get to this one chapter and it is so breathtakingly, horrifyingly, anti-semitic that yeah you want is the book redeemable at all can you and there was no need for it there was absolutely no yeah it's not like it furthered plot and she thought that was you know not that that's an excuse for for writing it that way but it's it's not that it served a purpose it's just that it was part and parcel well how they viewed the world and and what's interesting then is though that she has to have made a deliberate the fact that that this if you're looking at sort of like prejudice within context, a lot of people, I think, first of all, I actually think that sometimes people are too soft on some of the prejudices in the past. And I actually think that sometimes they assume that no one was speaking out against this. When you're looking at those kind of chapters in the Scarlet Pimpernel, she has, that they were not part of the plot. She made a very conscious decision to- Absolutely. Absolutely. To make sure the anti-Semitism was in it. It did not further the plot. Right. It, it right. could have been it could have been a Jewish character that we did not speak vilely about, or it yeah. could not. It, it could have been a character who wasn't Jewish. It was so deliberate that you know you you have to look at that and say, well, that was just an absolutely poisonous attitude yeah. that she had and chose to reflect. And, and also, they they were they you know it's it's the moment that the that the prosecution put the, the newsreel, the, excuse me, the film reels on in the Nuremberg courthouse and played what had been mm. dis- discovered when they liberated the concentration camps. That this was a moment where sort of a mirror was held up to your continent and said, look at where your comments and your, and your yeah. look at what you not let happen, what you enabled, what you enabled right. 
you're, right. you're and your I parents think- and your grandparents and your great grandparents and way back to your dot. This you were they you were putting paving stones in the road to Auschwitz. That, that's what your comments did for for hundreds of years. And so yeah, I think you can certainly see, and and a lot of them. You know, a lot of them, I think, spent the rest of their lives rightly guilty about what they had mm-hmm. thought before 1945. But I also think there were some who were just uh, embarrassed and did not want to discuss what they had felt and what they had what they had done. So you can and and, and contemporary fiction is always a mirror to its time, right. and that I find fascinating and chilling at the same time. Yeah, I mean, it's the it's the same thing with um, Georgette Hare, who um, wrote some really lovely, lovely, lovely Regency fiction. Um, and yet you run up against these really because she's writing in the 1930s. And, you know, again, you run into this sort of very casual, really over the top, just slap you in the face anti-Semitism where you're like, what? Why? Yeah. Why, why is this here? Why are you this person? Yeah. Um, because this was a cute little love story until you decided to be gross. Yeah. Um, and all you want to do is just kind of excise that and say, could, could we get a different version of this? Because the yeah. rest of it that has absolutely nothing to do with this is great. But why did you go there? You know, why, why was that necessary? Um, and it's always interesting to see people who will, who will kind of defend that to the death yeah. and say, oh, but it needs to be. No, I'm sorry. It's not. It doesn't. It's, it's not sacrosanct. Leave it alone. It, it, you it's know. great. It's not. It's not. It isn't. Don't be so it precious. I mean, it's, 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 it's a little bit. It's a little. It's always a little bit suspicious when you defend it very intensely. Oh, my side eye goes really <laughs> hard on those people. I'm like, oh. Do you have any? So, I mean, we talked a little bit about about nonfiction and and sorry, fiction and what we love. Do you have any nonfiction history books you particularly love? I'm so just as a warning to my friends. I am currently reading Lydianne Somerset's book, Unnatural Murder, which I've been reading to me, meaning to read for years. And I have just a feeling I'm going to become deeply annoying and recommending it ceaselessly to everyone I meet. And the last time I did that, it was with uh, Charles King's book, Midnight at the Para Palace, which is a nonfiction book about um, Istanbul, uh, specifically a hotel, but re- in Istanbul from the 1920s to 1940s, and it's incredible. So, do you have nonfiction that you're that you're in love with at the minute, or um... you know the the problem is I've been going through your back catalog of podcasts, and I have to stop this, now because this, I've ordered this, eight. Books this is not prearranged. Let's I have literally ordered eight books in the last two days. Um, between you and and Susanna Lipscomb, who's who's oh, uh, I, God, I, I love Susanna's podcast. Stuff, yeah. But do you know actually, Matt, Susanna's um, book, "The King Is Dead," about the the sort of the dying days of Henry VIII. <laughs> My grandmother looked at. It, I think about um, when it first came out, and she she pointed and she said, "That is the most beautiful looking history book I've ever read," and I was like. There's a copy of Young and Damned and Fair on the bookshelf. <laughs> like I agree, Susanna's book is beautiful, but you're my grandmother. Oh, <laughs> no man is a hero in his own hometown. Um, no, I, I, which is why I really like. I adore her podcast. So when you guys cross pollinated and you're like, like, oh my god, this is the greatest. She, but you know, one of the oh. things that I mean, Susanna is just. I mean, I. <sighs> I'm so in awe of her because I think she's not, she is great at presenting 
and interviewing. And it is quite rare to get both. Um, and I just think she's absolutely fantastic. She's, she's, I mean, I learn part of what I love about listening to both of your, pod- your podcasts. And you're right. There are people who present and there are people who interview and very rarely do the skill sets overlap. And both of you do a superb job. And so I, I thoroughly enjoy them both. I learn a ton and I just keep ordering books. It's getting, it, it's getting like dangerous around here. Yeah, I have um, to, there, there's a, there's a gentleman, um, <laughs> John Siegfried, who I, I, who follows me and is just, it's not a running joke. John is probably listening to this laughing because, um, <laughs> he, he, I think he had a meme that he put together of like, you know, um, a, a slow smoldering campfire and the words on it were my determination not to order any new books. And then someone's That's- pouring kerosene on it and he's just labeled it Gareth's podcast. Basically, I- yes. <laughs> yes. Between you and Susanna. I, I mean, you know, I like I wasn't familiar with Linda Porter and then I listened to one of your podcasts and I was like, okay, Miss Mistresses is on its way. I've got, you know, sure. I've got- Mistresses is great. Yeah. You know, Mistresses, I'm, I think in that, um, interview for this podcast Linda had said you know I, you know she, it was it it was something that it came out right at lockdown which I know and I was like you mean this book almost didn't happen yeah yes. and it but mistresses is first of all it is such a good read but also what it has is I think I said this to Linda actually I can't remember if I said it on I think I did say it on air it was when you were trapped it was that period of like lockdown lockdown and it was just the mo it was first of all it was very well researched and it was this capering escape into this demented world of charles ii and his see that's what i want that's yeah. what i'm totally here for and it might arrive before i go on vacation next week so Ooh, it, it does, that's yeah no but i'm 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 super excited because i've got that i've got an Anne somerset book that i haven't read yet and i've got elizabeth norton like loaded all of them i can but i've got five books that, because you sent me this question in advance and i was yeah. like i am not going to be caught flat-footed like the time when uh, a that happens, asked, doesn't it? And someone yeah. asks you a question, you're like, oh after it, like, what have I done? He asked me for a novel recommendation, and I said, I'm Pride and Prejudice. Like, I don't. <laughs> Who does that? Oh, oh I am. Um, first of all, I'm not d- backtracking this <laughs> because I do love <laughs> because I do love the book. But um, I remember doing an interview. Where was this? I have to remember. But it was they they <laughs> they were asking about you know. I still can't believe I said it. I can, but they um, this is you know talking about a really good adaptation from a novel, and were there cases where it had been you know that there it had been bested, and they obviously were trying to talk about God, of course, they were obviously trying to talk about um, <laughs> historical novels, and I cited Love Simon, the gay excellent first of all an amazing movie and i stand okay, by but it. you know what you broadened horizons that's what i'm I taking broad- away from this I, I broadened horizons behind my credibility no i think i i just i was like no that is not the genre you were expected to come up <laughs> at all you know what? here's the thing when people do not send you questions in advance they get what they get they get what they get I am sorry. You get what you, you were nice enough to send me this question in advance. So I actually have a list of five um, that I. Okay, so the thing that I'm obsessed with when it comes to my historical reading right now are the books about women that don't usually get written about, 
right. um, or have not been written about in this way before. So I absolutely, I, I wrote it, the book that came out before An Unexpected Peril, uh, the fifth book in the Veronica Speedwell series, what's called A Murderous Relation. And it takes place over the autumn of 1888. And if you know anything about the autumn of 1888, you know that if you are writing a book set in London at some point, you have to deal with the question of Jack the Ripper. Yeah. Because it was the story. It was the thing that was happening. It's what everybody was flipping out about. It was everywhere. And I was absolutely determined I was never going to write a Jack the Ripper book. And when I was doing the research is right when... Holly Rubenhold wrote Ugh. and published the five. What a book! What which a book. I'm I'm absolutely obsessed with this book. I I pushed. I'm evangelical on the subject of this book because yeah. if you know there, it's not just about the fact that these five women lived very different lives than what people think that they did. It's the fact that it does such a pitch perfect job of setting the scene. How many people know that in the autumn of 1888, there was a tent city of unhoused people living in Trafalgar Square? You think this is modern? It's not modern. Nothing is new. You know, these are these no. are things that happened. And it is just such a splendid book. And she has gotten so much abuse online from people who are absolutely obsessed with, I, I don't know, just like canonizing a serial killer but she did an absolutely superb job of explaining who these women were i by the way don't that. i don't get that about this love of this kind of fetishization of serial killers i do not understand it at all it's bananas it's yeah absolutely it bananas and this is you know she she did a superb job of kind of reclaiming these women as people with identities i mean all we've ever heard is oh there were five prostitutes well I literally thought there were not historical records about who they were because we've never been told. Yeah. And so to see how full a picture she was able to paint of each woman and what her life was like and how different it was to what we've always been told. To me, that is exactly what historians should be doing. Um, and, and it was, it was phenomenal. So I'm, I'm, like I said, evangelical about that book. It's, it's superb. I had so much fun with um, a book called Daughters of Chivalry by Kelsey Wilson Lee. It is a, it's a, a, a group biography of the daughters of Edward I, um, which I've never seen before. Um, I think it's. Yeah, I still haven't read it and I've heard very, very good things. It's on my list for 2022. So my, 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 my parents have, have, uh, you know, many years ago, probably 34 years ago, fell down the, the genealogy rabbit hole. Uh, And so, of course, as you do. And so um, there's a, there's a a direct descent from Edward the first, which, you know, he, he was horrible to most people. So it's not necessarily something to be proud of, but it's interesting. And these are his daughters. And um, Kelsey Wilson Lee um, wrote the book and she did just such a phenomenal job of presenting who these princesses were. Because you you hear about Edward I, you know, Longshanks, the Hammer of the Scots, um, wasn't particularly nice to the Welsh either. He had a problem with Jewish people. You know, if you're yeah, you, basically you, not lovely to most people. No, I actually just put up, funny enough, I just put up a podcast today about Piers Gaveston and I said... <laughs> I said, like, you know, Edward I never met a war he did not like. Like, never. I mean, just exactly, never. Exactly. Um, he, uh, 
getting back to what I said about Eastern or Western European men doing war, you know, he's your, he's your poster child for this. He he really is. He loved him a good war. But the beautiful thing about this kind of collective biography of his daughters is watching them play him and the way that they manipulated him or they would, you know, one of them throwing her, her coronet into the fire because he didn't give her a nice enough duel and she wanted better or the the one he sends off to a nunnery who does not live like a nun at all (laughs) keeps coming to court and you know and seeing how these princesses were able in many many ways to kind of just wrap him around their little finger or throw tantrums in front of him because his tantrums were legendary who knew that he was terrorized at times by his own daughters. And I just, I absolutely adored that book because, um, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a period at which, uh, during the reign of his son, Edward II, uh, Edward II's wife, Isabella France goes back to France, uh, after, you know, uh, a lot of years of putting up with his, his various and sundry, uh, you know, excursions, uh, sure. <laughs> uh and says, there are three people in this marriage. Uh, marriage should be between a man and a woman. I, you know, I'm not going back until this interloper is removed, kind of putting on this very, you know, woe is me, um, I, I'm the wronged wife kind of thing. And in Daughters of Chivalry, you see that one of her sisters-in-law did the very same thing years before in the Low Countries. And I, the idea that maybe Isabel might have looked to another woman in this family and said, you know what? That's not a bad strategy. I think I'm totally going to use that. Is absolutely mind blowing, and yet it's not something I've ever seen anyplace else. No. You know that that this is this is this was a family of women who interacted and knew each other, and you know had relationships. And we get so stuck on the men that seeing how the women in the family, you know, because a lot of times we don't even know where these princesses were born or what year or. You know, I think he had a daughter called Elvira or whatever. And then to see when someone is actually able to find them and put personalities. It's extraordinary, and, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. Um, I also really enjoyed Rosalind K. Marshall's Scottish Queens. It's good, isn't it? I like Rosalind K. Marshall's stuff, actually. I think she's... It's the first book I've read of hers. Yeah. And it starts, you know, it starts with Lady Macbeth and it goes up to Queen Anne, which I thought was a kind of a, a, a very original choice of how to frame your Scottish queens. Yeah. Um, but it, it did a really good job because we get obsessed with, I think, the English consorts. And yes. the Scottish ones were, were, if not as interesting, more interesting because, you know, you had so many Scottish kings who, who succeeded to the crown in their minority. And, yeah. and the queens were playing a oh, premature role. exits and entrances is just the theme with the Scottish monarchy, I think, for, for okay, some right. Yeah. And then I loved, I loved Sarah Gristwood's um, Game of Queens that came out a couple yeah. of years ago, uh, yeah. just because of the fact that it does, it does such a great job. You know, the older I get, I started off very young, you know, very teen Mary Queen of Scots. And, and, and as I get older, the more I'm, I'm, you know, team Elizabeth the first. And now we're getting into practically team Catherine de Medici going, I see her point. Um, you know, so many times 
she's been been presented as this monster. So there's a book, um, um, Estelle Perang's working on it at the minute. It's kind of like a dual biography of Elizabeth I and Catherine de Medici's correspondence with each other. It's um, I think. Oh my god! I have, really exciting. I have it on pre-order. Like I'm, I am the idea that um, because I think she was. It might have been on Susanna's podcast where she was talking about the fact that everybody sets up Elizabeth and Mary Queen of Scots as the rivals, but Elizabeth's rival was really Catherine de Medici and who had this relationship and had to negotiate a lot of stuff and, and, you know, kind of figure their way forward. It's extraordinary, isn't it? I think you, cause you have these, uh, uh, Catherine de Medici and Elizabeth the first are the, are two great survivors in a way that, and that's a different dynamic really to, to Elizabeth and Mary. Oh, it absolutely is because, you know, Mary, Queen at six days old, you know, she's, she's got the power of the, of the Guise family behind her. She's, you know, she's, she's got some inborn advantages. You look at Elizabeth and you look at Catherine de' Medici and you think, okay, these girls really were starting off behind the eight ball in a lot of ways. Um, and, and were very much kind of self-made women in a world that was not um, easy for them that 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 did not offer them these advantages um and they had to kind of you know the i remember the first time i heard that um about elizabeth as she's you know kind of being faced uh with being taken to the tower and mary uh mary the first reign that, that she's sitting there saying okay i'm gonna wait for the tide to turn and, you know, <laughs> yeah. this letter and i'm gonna take my time and really take turn. my time yeah and 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 then the fact that she scored the bottom of the page so nobody could add a postscript and i thought how old was she when she did this like, this is a political animal this is someone who who had a complete instinct for survival and who not only survived but thrived and catherine de medici is very much the same you know she's yes. she's a woman who had to kind of figure it out as she went along you know we we have this benefit of hindsight going back to you know looking at at how everything turned out and and kind of casting who we like as 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 hero or villain and the re- reality is and 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 this is what i told you about why i i enjoyed your Catherine howard book so much is is every one of them really needs to be approached with nuance and and the idea that um that that very few of them are completely one or the other um and and they need to be contextualized you know we i i think you um, and it, it, you know, it even gets down to, to really small things. Like you always hear about Anne Boleyn being reared in France. And yet how often do people talk about the time that she spent at the court of Burgundy and, and, yeah. you know, the, the fact that that was the first formative place she was. And, and she was under the influence of extremely intellectual savvy women who, um, who, you know, were, were kind of instilling in her this this very sophisticated worldview and and that you know this was this was a uh, a woman who comes back to england very conscious of her place in yes. in anglo-irish history and who i think if she'd been countess of butler probably would have been a lot happier yeah um, or yeah. countess of ormond uh you know with a countess of ormond with a butler husband would have, would have probably been much happier than than she ended up but please you've also had novels like whisper of jasmine set in 1914 new york and night of a thousand stars which includes scenes set in jazz age damascus your writing has been praised Jana, for evoking both a sense of time and place and just as we were t- talking there is is there 
is the way you research place different to the way you research time or is, is, are they sort of interconnected? You know, I, I, I think they're, they're completely interconnected. Um, I, I try as often as I can to go to the places I'm going to write about. And sometimes it's absolutely not possible. Um, you know, um, I, I could not go to Damascus uh, when I was writing these books. Uh, that just wasn't a possibility. Um, but the times that I've been able to go and, and uh, you know, kind of trace the elements uh, in, specifically, usually in England, um, elements that are going to find their way into the books, even if it's 100 years, 150, 200 years after I'm going to be writing, there's usually something. Yes. It can be it can be even the quality of the light. Uh it can it can be, you know, just um a tree that you know that's been there 300 years that somebody would have looked out their window and seen. Um you know there there's something that is enduring about the place even if it changes throughout time. And so that's that's what I look for. Um a lot of times when I'm researching People adore hating on Wikipedia, but it is actually a fantastic resource to start research for a novel if you scroll down to the bottom and you Who's find the, the section. Yeah. If you find the bibliography and you find the resources, because it is actually a really quick way to dig into who's writing about this, who's just put out an article about this thing that I'm interested in. And so I use that as a jumping off point. Um, and I'll go and, and kind of sleuth out, uh, people who are, and you know, that, that's, that's the beautiful thing about the internet is that people who are, um, you know, immersed in a particular time or a particular place geek out about it and they, they may be doing a podcast or they may yeah. be doing, you know, YouTube videos about it, or, you know, there are all sorts of, of fantastic resources. One of my absolute favorite tricks is I will go and find uh, if at all possible, an author who was a child in the time and place that I'm going to be writing about. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Children retain a very different sense of place than adults do. Their memories tend to be much more tactile and much more sensory. So I will go and find, like when I was writing um, a book set in um, kind of uh, just beyond Darjeeling, I I was reading the memoirs of um, Rumor Garden and MMK because they were um, either uh, MMK was a child, Rumor Garden was a young woman in in the area where I needed to be, and so their memoirs are full of how things tasted, what did they sound like, you know, what it, uh, all of these interesting little bits of information that children kind of collect like magpies do that maybe adults would overlook. And so that tends to be a really good way. If it's an area that I'm, I'm really unfamiliar with, that's a good kind of um, brilliant. entrance really brilliant. Thank you. Well, what does 2022 have in store for you? Provided yeah, so that busy. Corona doesn't. I'm so corona. busy, Gareth. <laughs> <laughs> Provided that Corona doesn't decide to have the greatest comeback. Oh, the- oh my God! I'm so tired of her. Um, uh, she's such a bitch. <laughs> I hate her. I hate her so much. She's she's um, like a toxic friend at this stage. Oh my god! I was out on book tour in March of 2020, and literally, she was following me because yeah. I was the last event for every bookstore. 
on my book tour. They were like, this is it. And they were closing down after me as I went. And my publisher was on the phone with me every day saying, do you want to come home? Are you okay? Are you all right? And I was like, yeah, it's not where I am yet. I'm fine. You know, these bookstores are independent. They've all ordered books. I don't want to have to send them back. So I will stay out on the road, but yes, if it were, and, and they told me literally no one went out on the road after, after uh, I left because it was just, it was horrifying. Um, but I will, I will get my first in-person event, um, that I'm very excited about everybody. Everybody's vaxxed. Um, it is a, it is a masked event. It is, it is being done with great care, but I'm very excited about that. I'm doing, I'm of course doing a ton of online events, which Mm -hmm. I do love those too, because, um, they're weirdly tiring to, to do a lot of zoom events, uh, for reasons I don't completely understand, but, uh, it also gives you a chance to talk to people around the world, um, which Absolutely. is phenomenal. So I have um, the paperback of 2021's release, An Unexpected Peril, is out in January. And the new Veronica Speedwell book, um, An Impossible Imposter, is out in February. And then September comes my very first contemporary. And I am ridiculously excited about this book. Amazing. I'm so excited. It's about four female assassins who um, are on the cusp of retirement. They're 60 and they're being forcibly retired and they have to band together uh, to take out the organization they work for. So it's tick, very tick, good. Tick. It's very good for angry women, which <laughs> I've been angry for years now, Gareth. This is my wheelhouse. <laughs> Well, you can find out more about Deanna's work and her really I mean, gorgeous website, DeannaRayburn.com. In the meantime, a huge, huge thanks to you, Deanna, for joining us on Single Malt History. Oh, this was an absolute delight, Cousin Gareth. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. From, from one side of the family to the other. And to you all for listening for your time as well. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.